Grow Great is a city government leadership podcast with Lisa Norris and me, Randy Cantrell. Each week we share insights, experiences, and wisdom to help you and your leadership grow great. Our website is growgreat.com. So, Randy, we talked about the churn. The churn is our kind of part one. It's a big discussion when you're losing employees um, and it's inherent you will lose some, even the good ones. What do you do? We kind of left off with where we were at, what the churn is, why it happens. But what do you look at to minimize the churn, I think, is what's important here. And uh, offline, we were talking, I always call it the four-legged stool, and I had to think about it for a second because I was at three legs for just a few <laughs> minutes. And I was like, Where, what's my fourth leg? Yeah. I need I more coffee. Yeah, it's but, uh, the a four-legged four stool instead of a four-legged chair. <laughs> That's right. The, the, four-legged, <laughs> the four-legged stool, obviously, as I look at everything, when I'm working with uh, departments that are losing people, um, we do look at pay and benefits. We talked in our last uh, show that, that introduced this topic, that it cannot be the only, if, if you're fe- feeling and paying benefits is the only thing, then you'll, you'll never be able to sustain yourself or be happy because it's an impossible single solution, right? We, we just can't sustain ourselves. But paying benefits is one leg of the chair. We need to make sure we're competitive. The second t- thing is to review our processes. You have to look at what is what is causing this internally, externally, at the time of hire, after the hire? Um, what does that look like inside? Do we ha- are we efficient? Um, is our time to hire reasonable? Is what we're doing on the background checks does it make sense? I mean, it's those are just components of it, but processes and efficiency can be a huge part of what drives people away that are in your organization or what keeps you from getting them on the front end. So you have to look at that and review it to make sure it's efficient. Um, the people, people is a huge, huge part of the four-legged chair. And that's from a leadership perspective, the leaders that are investing in people, um, the value that they're, the employees there bring to the table and know their worth. Uh, and then as you hire them, making sure they align align with what's important to you as a leader, align with what you're looking for in the next, I always call it the next great one. You know, what am I looking for in the next great one that that has the attributes and the values that align with not only our city, but with me as a leader and what needs to be important to the team members I bring on. And then lastly, culture. Culture includes a lot of things. It's work environment, it's the atmosphere, it's the hours, uh, it's balance, work-life balance. All of those things on that four-legged chair have to be level, you know, have to level that chair and make sure they're all equally important because you break one leg of the stool of the four-legged chair and what happens? Yeah, it, it doesn't work anymore. Yep. It doesn't work anymore. So all of those components are important when I talk about the churn. Yeah, I, I think about where we're just in the preseason of football, NFL. And I don't know that there's any work arena that spends more money and has more resources, more humans committing more man hours to try to figure out a roster 
you've got rosters at work. They've got rosters. Okay, it's an athletic endeavor. But when you stop and think about it, these people have got they've got video that goes back maybe to junior high, certainly to high school, on players if they played high school football. They've got college video. They've got high school coaches and they've got college coaches that they can go and talk to about this player. What, what kind of player was this? You've got you've got personnel departments in the league in the NFL that are it's a it's a big team of people that are pouring through all of this information and then we get this person we either draft this person or we invite them to our training camp and now we put them on the field and we're we're watching them we've interviewed them we've given them all kinds of tests and assessments just like city government does but we've got a lot of historical data on these people and the people who coach them, which is very unlike how the real world tends to work. And look at how frequently they don't get it right. Mm -hmm. The, you would think that with all those resources and with the millions of dollars that they can pay players that one team would just figure out how to be vastly better than every, but they don't. They don't. There's just extraordinary parity because they get it so wrong because there's so many other variables that are going on. These are human beings. And you get people that they don't have much of a college career. I mean, you take somebody here in Dallas, Tony Romo, who was a really good player. No, he didn't win the whole thing, but that's a whole nother story. But I mean, here's a kid that came out of some small college in Illinois and I don't know. He just, he was a stinking gunslinger, you know, at the NFL level. So I think about that and I think about it in terms of what we're trying to do in city government in assembling the best team. And I guess my, I'm, I'm saying all that to say this, that my preface would be, I don't think we ought to put so much pressure on ourselves to believe that we're going to get it 100% right. What Lisa and I are talking about, there, there's nothing's foolproof here. The NFL is not foolproof, and they've got way more resources than any of us have to get it right, and they're still going to get it wrong. But well, look they, at how much they're paying people. I mean, if you oh, look exactly. at pay and benefits. Oh, exactly. They're paying a lot of money, and does every, like you said, does every team win because they paid the highest? No. No. Because there has to – and how many times have you heard coaches – say or players say that win the Super Bowl, why do you think you won when they're interviewed? I don't know. Or we just got we just got it. We just molded. We gelled. I mean it's just Well every coach can tell you though they they know chemistry when they see it. And some coaches right. are better at building it than others. And That's it's the right. reason that you see coaches leave. Coaches do tend to have a lifespan because locker rooms can get tired of the same message. They get, get tired of the same. I get it. I understand it. I've coached enough at the amateur level, college guys down to six-year-olds, and there's something to it when people look around. Your people component, I think, I think is really huge. I, I, I believe in the power of a roster. Right. Because I believe in the power of most of us. Just listen to people. Listen to yourself. 
very few people are going to come home. The, the number one complaint that I think, this is speculation, but it's based on a whole lot of conversations, is people come home and they tend to tell stories about the idiots they work with. <laughs> you know, well, you're, guess what Jane did today? Right? Guess what Ed did today? And the roster matters. And the people that I have found that seem to be the happiest and the most contented and the most fulfilled, they genuinely like the people they work with. They don't come home and go, well, you'll never what, guess what Jane did. They may come home and say, well, funniest thing happened. You'll never guess what Jane did today. And it'll be something funny that they right. laughed about together. That camaraderie, that chemistry, that culture, call it whatever you want to call it really matters. Absolutely. It's you can't a big put a, component. and you can't put a price tag on that. No. And you it just takes can't effort. It takes effort to create that. That is, yeah. that, that does not just happen. A that's gr- right. Great culture is a lot of work by everybody that's involved, not just the leadership team, but by creating that spirit that, that permeates through your organization. Yeah. Yeah. We care about who we're playing with. You know, the, the people in the room matter, the roster matters. And I've yet to find anybody that can put a price tag on that. I've yet to talk to anybody if they're a leader, if they're not a leader, if, if they're just some schmo or they're at the top of the food chain, as we say, they really care about who they spend their time with. They care about whether it's eight to five or whatever it is, who else is in the room? Who am I playing with? Who else is on this roster? It really, really matters. That's right. And leader, you know, we've talked about leadership matters and it permeates this culture, this worth and value of the entire team, um, because you can have you can have a a weaker, less talented individual, but great leadership brings out the best in that one person and the best in the next person and their stud brings out the best in them, but doesn't value them any more or less than another. And you've talked about coaching. We saw this so much when, uh, you know, I, I go back, Don didn't have a higher level like you had, but he, he coached from, I don't know, the kids were probably eight up into high school where they kept asking him to continue coaching, even though he said he'd stopping at high school. And, you know, I remember him taking this team of kids that just happened to live in Carrollton from all over, a rec team. And as he, he, he kind of fell into the coaching job because our coach uh, unexpectedly passed, had, had high diabetes and other things, but he unexpectedly passed and they, they asked Don to coach the team. And so Don took these, these rec kids and looked at each one individually. And I remember it didn't matter. We had a couple studs on the team that just had natural gifted talent. And we had a guy that would, pitch and it would arc slowly and land over the plate you know you're just waiting for it to get there he was able to utilize the skills that that person brought to the table to make them the most valuable the vip of the the game i remember he brought in that guy that just arced it and just barely could throw it right well he i mean we were in probably a championship game it was either the semifinal or final and the kids we were playing love fastballs and he's like, okay, okay, you're going to, Lucas, you're going in. 
And Lucas is like, why coach? Why? You know, he goes, Lucas, I just need you to get it over the plate. He goes, okay, coach. You know, and I remember him going in there and those kids, he was just lobbing it. As, I mean, he's throwing as hard as he can, lobbing it. <laughs> right. Right. And they, those kids were swinging. Have you ever seen people swing so hard they spin around and fall? Oh, yeah. Well, their timing time, was completely thrown off. Time after time after time. And they yeah. won the game with the Lucas and the other. I think there was another little kid that could just barely pitch. That Once they started timing Lucas, they brought him in because he threw a curveball that just would drop. Yeah. Nothing magnificent. I mean, these right. are 10-year-olds. Yeah, right. But that's the power of team and the power of value and knowing – not only a coach not saying, okay, I need to bring in my stud pitcher. Yeah. He knows the value of the player and where to use them for the strength of the team. Right. Right. Well, and we're talking about assembling a team. So walk us through these four. Walk us through these four and let, let's help us understand your perspective and your experience and let's see what we can learn. All right. So, so we talked about the first leg of the chair, which is often what we hear managers talk about if I just had pay and benefits. I would never say if you just had, you've got them. Now, you need to be assessing them. Are they competitive? Look at where your current people are. We we always assess here in Grand Prairie, where are our current people and where are we bringing them in at, the new person, and making sure that's fair but competitive based on their skills. Now, every city does it a different way. You know, for us, we are looking at their total years of experience that got them to this point, um, not just time at this level to pay them, that's different for many cities. But we look at kind of total value and total time and then what you're bringing to the table and certifications and education experience. Um, so those need to be competitive. You need to pay fairly. You need to pay competitively for the market. And if that's off, you need to work with your you know, HR department to get it improved where you can, what you can afford. And that's different for everybody. So for us, that's how we do it. We look at both internal and external market, uh, and we keep that pretty current. We're doing a compression study as we speak now and making sure we're paying fairly. Um, in some cases, we want to be number one. We want to be at the top because it's horrible uh, an effort to try to find people and keep them. Detention, building inspectors. I mean, it's a lot of those we pay top notch for planners because there's so few of them, right? So you mm -hmm. have to know your market and pay them. That's on the pay and, and benefits side. Benefits, we just keep up with what other cities are doing and are we in the market for similar similar uh, benefits. Um, we Sometimes we don't do all the things that other cities do. Sometimes we do different, um, but we look at that and what works for us. Second thing is the processes. It's so important when departments are saying, I can't get people. I always, the first thing I go do is check with, kind of our recruiters and uh, the managers and saying, okay, how long does it take to hire somebody? Well, it takes you four months. Well, every time we call them, they're not, you know, they're not available. They've accepted another job. So that's on the, that's the methodology. You're taking too long. Your process, you need to look at your processes and figure out what in the process is getting them on board. And then once they're here on your existing team, it's, it's not just a pre-hire, it's a, it's a current retention issue. You've got to look at what are your processes internally? Are they efficient? Are they driving people away? Because everything is so cumbersome and clunky and antiquated and you need to fix what you can. Because that gets frustrating for people really fast if they're doing things three times, if the meetings are too long, if the meetings are too frequent, if they don't have work time, right? I mean, you have to study 
processes internally to make sure are we losing people that are frustrated because something isn't going well. How so, as an HR director, how often do you guys look at that? Or are you uh, always looking at it? Well, I wouldn't say always. It's more targeted. So as there's issues, usually the directors come to me and it's what you said. They say we need more pay and benefits. We aren't getting yeah. we aren't keeping people. Right. And I'll and I'll always say, well, let me look at the pay and benefit side, but here's what we need to do on your side. We need to do maybe we can do an organizational review. Maybe we can do an employee satisfaction survey. Let's make sure that the work environment, which we're we'll getting to in a minute, work environment, culture, processes, overtime, commitments, all of mm -hmm. that is in line. And there's not low-hanging fruit that we need to fix on on the internal side inside the department versus what we can do on the outside, right? With the pay yep. and benefits. Uh, because it it like I said, it's a it's a four-legged, you know, stool. You've got to have all these people, these things working simultaneously together to support the weight of the bench, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so you need to look at that internally, uh, methods, efficiency, all that good stuff. People is huge. Uh, people can be the leadership. People can be the value and worth you're placing in those individuals that they know why they're there and what they're adding to the team. Everybody needs to know their worth and their value and the organizational goals. Um, that's really, really critical. It's not just about us as leader. It's about us investing in our team and knowing where they want to go um, and being on their side, um, making sure you're creating a team and camaraderie amongst them. Uh, the hardest thing I think to do as a leader, Randy, is making sure they find value and worth in each other and removing judgment because it's easy to do. Negativity is easy to creep in and compare yourself to one another. And we do Thoughtful Thursdays once a month where I focus on understanding one another. They, I don't want them to be like you. I brought you all to the table because you're different and perspective is important. So understanding that in each player and helping them understand and accept others who are different from them for a variety of reasons and why they're valuable is critical. That's so what brings you, camaraderie. For you as a for you as an HR director, for, for your specific team, your own team. So if you interview somebody, walk us through your thought process as it relates to to this person and their ability, in your mind at least, to fit with the existing players on your roster? Well, I look, I look at a lot, you know, for me, once it gets to my level, I let my team do the interviews. I tell them you can do a telephone interview, you can do an in-person. I want to see them at the end because I'm asking the question, what motivates you to do a great job every day? What, what are you looking for in the next employer? Why are you leaving your current one? Because all of those things are going to tell me what's important to them. Yeah. What do you look for in a leader? What do you look for in a teammate? What was your most irritating thing at your last employer that drove you nuts? You know, I don't ask anything about how their skills and abilities. I'm assuming is, those is, is embedded. Are the skills and abilities, is that the main thing that you want the interview panel to vet before it gets to you? Or is there something in addition to that? Nope. That I just have them make sure that they can do the job, but sprinkle in fit. I always tell them, I don't want fit before they ever get to me. You need to make sure they're going to fit. Um, right. Not only what where they are now, but it's really important to me to see where people want to go. Right. Yep. Uh, if you have a, a person that's brand new in the career and says, I want to replace you, that gets, tells me a lot about a person. <laughs> right. And a lot of people think that's a strength to say that. 
but that's not humble. That's not humility. Yeah. I want to know, I want to become the best at my job. So eventually I can become right. a director. That's what I'm looking for in an answer. I want to do the best I can for you in my role and help others. Those are the things that are important when I'm hearing an answer. Yeah. What's important to you about others when they totally focus on self. Um, and that's natural in an interview. They sell themselves, but I'm looking for what do they value in their teammate? What, it, what was important to them and their leader? What's their best mentor been and why? Those are the things that will stand out to me and tells them if their values align with mine and, and my teams. You got, you got any story? I'm putting you on the spot. You got any story of somebody that good candidate, but for whatever reason you just thought probably won't mesh well with the team? Um, there's been lessons learned over time. I can tell you that, um, where I didn't ask all those questions. Uh, I used to ask the technical abilities, um, and I've debated with upper leadership on this, uh, at times where probably in the last, probably six years ago. So not very long in my 26, 27 year career here that I used to ask all the questions about Tell me a time when you started a project. Tell me right. how do you take initiative? Tell me, you know, and it's all these skill-based things. And I don't know if you've ever been in interviews where you have a, you're like, mm, I'm not, I just, I'm not, no, I can, oh, I can get, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll retrain them. Yeah. I have learned to go them. with my gut 100% of the time now. <laughs> yeah, if there exactly. is something they don't answer well and it throws up a little bit of, I don't call it a red flag, but a yellow one. I typically don't go with them anymore. Yeah. I've learned to ask different questions to get better results. And that's a big part when we talk about curiosity, ask mm -hmm. better questions to get better answers. Right. So I've had a time when I was interviewing and I focused on their long-term ability, long-term skills. Mm -hmm. How long have you been doing this? I wanted somebody that's been in HR 12 or better years so they can come in and hit the ground running. And you know what I found? Often in those, and I hired two of them at the same time. And this is, this has probably been seven years ago or better. Both very technical had been doing HR a long time, not necessarily in local government, brought in a lot of skills. And you know what happened when I, and I asked all about skills, not about fit. When I got them into the, into the team, very self-focused very much competitive, actually competitive against one another, always comparing themselves to one another, how much value they bring versus what the other person brings. And I quickly learned trying to mold that. Um, I saw the yellow flags and thought I could change them at the time, naive. And this tells you, I mean, I told you this is like eight years ago. And so this is not like I learned this in the first three years, but um, I had... At the time, managers that said, you need to get people that are very skilled, low time investment, right? Just get them up and running so you can let them go. Yeah. And you know what I found? I can't do that here. Pace is too frantic, tedious system. Mm -hmm. You have to learn it and do it well. You have to understand the why to everything that you do. So I completely, and, and they didn't last long. I think one of them quit within six months. Uh, another one I had to let go eventually because they were just causing chaos and leaving a trail behind them of wounded animals. Carnage. You know? 
the carnage. Yeah. And so, you know, I had, I had to, I had to cut them loose. And so, uh, and that's tough because I had invested so much energy in trying to make it work, but you, you got to learn to hire, right? I always call it hire for life. Kind of like we talked about a marriage. Mm-hmm. You've got to interview them almost like it's a marriage. You know, what are you looking for in the qualities of the person in front of you? Do they fit what our city's about? Do they fit the mission of people and service? Do they have a heart and passion for service? Um, and if we, co- their- if we co-mingle this with your fourth leg, because we hadn't yes, gotten to the yeah. fourth leg. Okay. Yeah, so the fourth leg um, becomes, once you're interviewing the people and you've got to establish, when I talk about people, you've got to invest from the top down. I mean, it's difficult. Let's say your city manager does not have the same vision you have and you're completely at opposite ends, that's going to be a more difficult transition as you go down. Typically, you'll see alignment because you've stayed there and you want to be there. That's what I've seen. I mean, that's what we have here. No matter the change, you have to adapt and align, but it doesn't mean anything was wrong or it's just different. Different's different, you know? Um, So we've had, and we've talked about that on a lot of shows, we've had transition to the top 100%. And you just have to learn the different perspectives of each person, what they value, and then align yourself with them and your natural values. You don't want to change your values to do that. But I just had to align to their purpose and mission. And when we talk about culture, culture is key. Culture is your work environment. Do you have a work environment where people want to get up and come into work every day? I call it their their choosing joy not happiness, joy, happiness is moments. Joy is internal, right? Yep. Um, so when you have your pay and benefits are competitive, your processes and methodology are aligned, efficient, and you're working towards that at least, uh, that has to do a lot um, with engagement too. You'll engage people if, if things are efficient because they are part, they're empowered to make those changes. Then you've got your people, you value your people, you've invested in them, you're growing them. All of those things matter. And you've got camaraderie and then they have worth. Then you get to the culture because now they want to keep that work culture. They want something healthy. They want to love coming into work every day. Overtime needs to be, you know, reasonable work methodologies need to be reasonable. They need to make sense to people. Um, And, all of those things have to be working in tandem, as I called it, to keep your bench strong and healthy, right? If one leg's weak or one leg's broke, well, you've ever sat down on a chair and you hear it squeak and you're like, oh God, I need to, <laughs> I need to, I'm either I need to need lose, to lose weight, weight <laughs> <laughs> or I need to check the components of the chair, the strength of the chair. One of the legs is off, you know, you, you, it quickly loses its strength when one leg is off. And that's the same with these four components. If one of them's off and it's ne- it's a never ending, never ending process, something's going to be off and it's going to take work all the time. It's a, you know, they call it the marathon, not the sprint. You're always going to be in it looking to tweak and modify and then roll for a little bit while it's strong. And then something's, I can tell you something's going to happen again that needs work. In and your it's a never experience, cycle. In your experience, which one of those four and we're working from the assumption that all four are equally vital and necessary. But is there one that's historically just been tougher, in your opinion, as you've 
in your department and in working to help other departments assemble a good team? I think people is the hardest people take people take the most work because we're humans and we're all different, but culture is key. I would say, you know, there's not really one Randy here other than the human side of things. Every person sees things differently, acts differently. I tell people 10% of your people are taking 90% of your time. That's where your time investment's going to fall. But you won't keep any people if your culture's not right. You just won't keep them. So of those two, probably culture is key to retention and them being attracted to your organization. But retaining them, they've got to have a team and leader that they want to see and have value in every day. If they don't have that, they don't want to get up. If the work environment's bad and the people are bad, those two things will destroy a team. You will not. And then then you have behind you a perception that you have to overcome because that gets out. Sure. You know, if your culture's not good and your people and it, it's a tough team, people will thieve them or they're going to go find something else. Those two have to be aligned. I come from a perspective of as leaders, you know, what can we do? There, There's plenty of stuff that we can't do. If you are a director and you've got a budget, that's a constraint. You've just, you've got to deal with the budget. You can moan about it. You can gripe about it. But until next budget planning season, you can't do a whole lot about it. Mm-hmm. You can go to the upper brass and you can make your pitch and appeal, but, and it may happen, but it's not likely going to happen. And so you've just got to deal with that. We've all got them. We've all got constraints. None of us are God. None of us are able to control every variable in all of this equation or or all four of these things 100%. As a leader, you can do what you want, for instance, when it comes to people, culture, fit, roster. You can try to develop the best that you can, but you need willing participants to help you do that because you can't – none of us are operating in a, vac, a vacuum. So – I know I'm a broken record, but I think it just it it just bears beating this into the ground so that we really get it. Personal and individual responsibility as a leader. Take control of it. Own it. Lock, stock, and smoke and barrel. It's up to you to change this thing. It's up to you to get the roster right. It's up to you to do your dead level best to fight for what you believe you need when it comes to the resources, pay, benefits. But everything else other than that, and you've got some control over that as a leader, but you've got pretty much full control. You need willing participants. You've pretty much got full control of the other three, though. It's not lost on me that there's way more that we can do. It's just funny to me, not funny haha, but just funny sad, how many leaders just have a white flag and they're just waving it as though they're just helpless. There's just nothing that they can do to improve their roster. There's nothing they can do to improve the culture. There's nothing that, you know, it just is what it is. And this is my lot in life. And I encounter it. I don't encounter it very often because mostly I deal with high performers, but occasionally I will have a conversation with somebody and I'm like, I just, I'll just leave shaking my head and thinking, you know, what a pitiful way to live. 
I mean, to get up every day thinking that there's just nothing that I can do to invest in people. There's nothing I can do to grow people. There's nothing I can do to improve not only my situation, but the the situation for some other people. And all of don't you feel don't you feel that comes back to a little bit of humility, though? They they aren't humble enough to see. They aren't humble enough to see that there are solutions. They just have to go look for them. Because so, yeah, they're taking ownership a, in their mind. Yeah, that, I think that that's I a can't huge, do anything. It's yeah, all I about think, me. I think there's a huge part. I think it's, well, there's, that's where I think the, the lack of humility comes. I think it's just completely self-centered. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's completely, it's completely selfish. But it's not lost on me that there are victims, and there's an awful lot of people who, who want to be victims. They enjoy being victims. If I'm not responsible, if I don't have to be accountable, if it's somebody else's fault, then there's just too many people, in my opinion, that look at that as a pretty great way to live. Then I, I don't, I don't have to accept responsibility for anything. I'm wired just the opposite. It drives me. It would drive me crazy to have have to acquiesce. <laughs> I'm not going to acquiesce that. I'm just not. Yeah. I'm just not. I mean, I'm persistent and you well, know. but there would be people that would view our viewpoint like that as as anything but humility. They might view that as arrogance. I don't see it that way. I see it as I'm not the center of the universe. And I know that there's stuff that's going to happen. Bad things happen. I got fixated a couple of days ago because I had a conversation about trauma. Somebody's talking to me about trauma and all this trauma that they've had in their life. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I mean, I'm curious and I know what I'm thinking when I think of the term trauma and this person goes on to talk about, you know, various people that have wronged them. And over the course of the conversation, it becomes pretty clear to me, this is pretty just typical, ordinary. I mean, has anybody mistreated you ever? Has anybody ever spoken an unkind to her? Okay. Well, that's, this person is viewing all of that put all of that in the basket and let's call that trauma. And I just, I left just fascinated that they really believe this. You know, I mean, to me, trauma is a soldier that has gone, you know, over to the Middle East somewhere and they've been fighting against terrorists and they've seen all kinds of things that my eyes have never seen, don't want to see. That's trauma. You know, I'm I'm not thinking of these injustices that have been perpetrated on me, knowingly or not. I just don't feel I don't feel trauma traumatized. It's just interesting to me the the vantage point that some people take uh, to absolve themselves of. I mean, this person was coming at it as though some of the problems that they were having professionally and in their personal life stemmed from these various injustices done to them. I, well, that's not, much easier than taking accountability. Yes, yeah, that we are my, empowered to change. Yeah, but something it's not ourselves. My, it's not your worldview. It's not my worldview. But right. it is the worldview of a lot of folks. And it is. I'm a broken record. It, it's why I, I said in the first part of this. Let's just think about our. Let's think about what we can do, and let's think that's about right. it in terms of what we can do for these other these other people. And so it's not lost on me that three of the four, really, you could argue four of the four. We we got control of it. Now, you right. don't have control of the purse strings completely, but if you're in some position of leadership, you've likely got some degree of input on the budget. 
doesn't mean that you're going to get what you ask for, but you can at least make you can at least make the appeal and you can at least make the pitch. But the other three, man, there's if you're, you're a director, a lot. Yes. if you're a director or or you're the the boss, you yeah, it's you you pretty much got it in your in your control. Well, and I don't if you're know, a team me, member, Randy, a, I mean, if you're a team member, if you're not a director and you're listening to this, you also have control. Yeah, exactly. How how, I think how so. your teammates view it, you can either I always you know I call it weeding weeding the garden, weeding out negativity. If what is the different message if you're on a team that says, "Man, this team sucks. I am so sick of having to do this every day." What if you hear that every day? That you're in control of that, and guess what? All of a sudden, people start going. Maybe it does suck. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, you do have influence and you have impact. Well, or maybe it view. sucks because of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it could, it exactly. could be. No, you're right. I, I think it's our influence on other people and we can either come and we can, we can either be a benefit or we can be a detriment. That's right. And so much of this for me, at least when it comes to not only just assembling the team, but keeping a team together. And that's what we're going to end with part three on talking about, okay, now you've gone through the interview process. Yeah. You've you've dated this person. You have vetted this person. You've decided that you're going to metaphorically put rings on each other's finger and you're going to marry each other and offer them the job and they're going to accept it. Now what? Now what? But I think so much of it does matter. Do you think? Do you think we spend enough time, or is it not so much time? Is it more? We just really don't quite know how to go about getting a roster together, adding to our team, finding the right person, hiring the right person. What do you think goes wrong there mostly? I, I, I believe that often people are fixated on what used to work and no longer does. That's just my perspective is that um, because that's, for instance, that's, that's tough change for all of us is focusing on, for me, I had to learn to focus on fit and value. And then I had to also invest in the day-to-day -day here of making a work environment and culture and team that values one another. Those were the things that were kind of lost on me early in my career that I was just trying to manage the tasks every day. And kind of, I didn't see um, just, I think part of it is naive and youth, right? I was just a young leader. Didn't, I just didn't know better trying to do the best of what I believed to be true and managing people, but I was really more focused on the tasks and fixing things than seeing the value in, I need to get the team right. But what were the big changes in that, getting the team right? What were the big changes, the big growth changes for you? For me, it was just- assembling and hiring. Yes, in hiring, it was it was focusing on the, the alignment of values, alignment of fit. That's where it really, turned for me is as opposed to just skills and competency. That's correct. Skills and competency. Cause I was always like, well, how long have you done this? Well, how did you do that? What did you do? Tell me about your steps in a, you know, project. That's all. Some of it, I guess, could be perceived as fit, but I was really focusing, focusing on the specific skills in our industry and not how, how do their values align? line with ours and what value are they bringing to the table from perspective and did you have to did you have to sacrifice skills and competency in order to get fit not necessarily but i have found that those that are willing to grow and learn are a lot more moldable clay 
So you were willing to forego some skills and competency. That's correct. That's correct. If they so had gaps, I'm okay with gaps. I just need to, they need to be known. Gotcha. Yeah. For me, th that was the, the primary focus. When I started focusing on their fit and what they bring to the table and what they value, one, pay becomes much less of an issue because that's not what drives them and motivates them every day. So pay is much less. And I know I'm going to pay them competitively and fairly, but I just found I lost much fewer people to pay and titles because that wasn't what was valued. It was culture, work environment, the people around them. And I knew I had that solid, right? Um, so that, that was one thing I learned early on in my career and, uh, and have changed that over time. And then it's the continual investment like, that we're going to get to in our next, you know, kind of mm -hmm. part three of this discussion. Once I have them on board, what am I doing with my team now every day to continue the development and growth, the culture, the work environment and the value in others and, and, and understanding how to place value in others? Because we can't, in my opinion, you may, you may debate with me on this. I don't think you can have an entire team of A players. You can't have studs in your entire team, but you have to know how to bring out the best in each person that you have. I think everybody brings value to the table. You need to see it, identify it, and utilize it to its fullest potential to benefit the team. No, and because I agree. You can't just I... have, you can't just have this, you can't, you can hire 12 studs and I can guarantee you, you aren't going to have the best team. I can guarantee it. Yeah. But, no, I, but, I agree with you. If we define, you know, the A player as, as the person who's just, you know, they're, they're the all-star, mm -hmm. you know, te teams of all-stars don't tend to work out. That's right. Too terribly well. So no, I completely agree with you before we wrap up this part two, I got a loaded question. It's not really loaded, but I'll blindside you again. Since the pandemic, what are some big things that you've learned that work now in today's environment, maybe they did before the pandemic, but because it largely because of the pandemic and it has, it has sparked so much shifting, mostly the remote work stuff, mm -hmm. but more than that, even more than that, it, it seems to have impacted just culture completely. What are some things that you've learned in, in the span of the last three years that you do today differently that you have found are effective and work? because because of the pandemic well I'm, i had I, I i had briefly i don't know if we uh really focused on this in prior podcasts but one of the things that i really saw very evident i called it the great reprioritization you know a lot of people called it the great resignation people just quitting yep to me it wasn't just about the quitting because that implies they want to work i think so many people decided this is my Lisa Norris opinion only. This is not fact-based. This is not survey-based. I think, I believe so many people reprioritize their lives because they were losing loved ones. They were, there were financial challenges with things closing down, um, industries closing down, uh, mom and pop shops that had to close that couldn't survive it. All kinds of things that impacted families in such a way and to such a degree that we have never seen in the nation that people reprioritize what's valuable to them in life. And I think the same happened in business. At least I saw that here that we, the value in being happy 
and being joyful and appreciating what's in front of you and not what you don't have, you know, appreciating what you do have versus what you don't became very, very evident. And I saw this, this big shift in just gratefulness um, for the ones that were on the team. There was just this appreciation for what we have and not what we don't. But secondly, it was a complete shift in hiring in the industry and trying to find people. I've never seen the degree that we have now of trying to find candidates um, because they are really kind of ruling the industry now. They have the power, the candidates do, because there's there's so many people that are available for work, but unwilling to accept things that aren't what they believe to be valuable to them. Before people just try to get jobs, I, I call it people hired bodies. We just need a worker. You know, now it's, there's not that many workers. There's a lot, they say there's a lot of unemployed. There's a lot of um, underemployed, which means they're in jobs that are less valuable than their skill sets would lend them to be. Um, but it's been a, it's been an unusual dynamic of trying to find people that want to work under the, the conditions that we have the pay, the benefits, the culture, it has to all, this chair, this four-legged chair has to perfectly align for you to get the people. And then just trying to find the people is a huge challenge. That's where I've seen the main shift, a dynamic and gratefulness of those here uh, because of what they've, I think, I believe what they've lost and what they've seen their family has lost. And then trying to find the people that do want to work and, and compete for them well. All right. My last question, then I'm going to shut up and let you end the show. So these keeping with that thought and these four, these four legs of this chair, what changes have you, have you personally implemented any, any, any changes in how you view those four things or your practice of those four things in light of what's happened to us in the last three years? Absolutely. I mean, that's where the, co uh, I call it the COVID <laughs> yeah. COVID really, when we were separated, when we were separated from everybody, everybody, we went, I, I think pretty much everybody had to work from home, keep your distance. Um, can't come into work because of the volatility of the spread of this, uh, infection. That's what developed what I initially started as our, uh, um, when I can't remember the name of the original, it was a Friday, feel good Fridays. And we did it every week to now thoughtful Thursdays that would have evolved over time to once a month with the team, because I found quickly through having a very, very sick mom who was in the hospital and became pretty much incoherent um, and un unable to move from a person that had been completely independent that I couldn't see. And that the value of people and human touch was critical to her. And she didn't have it. Uh, I saw a thriving person go to almost nothing, right? When I saw that and saw my team, I quickly learned I have got to get, I got to get these people connected and I've only got virtual to do it. So I need to figure it out. So we went to these feel good Fridays and, and now again, thoughtful Thursdays where the entire time was focused not on work, but on each other. What's your struggle this week? What's one word that describes how you're feeling? And we quickly started learning about one another. 
And I had to be very strategic in how I did it because it was a lot of, uh, you'd be surprised, a lot of tears that came out, a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. And a lot, a lot of what people, for instance, if I said one word, that, you know, how you're feeling this week, one word, and it would be anxious. And people automatically form what they believe to be true that you mean. And when I'd go back around and say, now tell me why you feel that way. And I had to tell them it was a no judgment zone. This is a time that we don't judge each other, that we lift each other up. We are to lift and support. If you walk out of here and break each other down, this is going to be completely ineffective. And they all embraced it on our team. And when you started talking about, okay, I'm anxious because my child just told me they're thinking about suicide and they're nine. You know, I mean, it was that kind of stuff coming out and it, it didn't have anything to do with work. That's what, where I saw this huge shift of, we have got to understand each other and where we're coming from. You have no idea what people bring into work each day. And when we learned that and just appreciating and when you see somebody's facial expression, you don't just walk by, you stop. Hey, you okay today? You know, we've just learned a lot about that during COVID that we had never really had to pay attention to as much before. I didn't the, think we needed to. Yeah. I, the value of team and investing in one another became absolutely apparent. Uh, and do we still need it today? And you got to understand, and Randy, you know me well. For years, I focused on the to, to the things I needed to get done. And then it evolved in not only what I need to get done, but how is my team doing today? I mean, that has to be an everyday thought. And how am I growing them? And how am I adding value? And how am I making sure they know they have worth and purpose in their job to this city, that they can make a difference individually? That I really had a shift in that dy dynamic and especially in valuing one another because I was thinking they'll value one another. They're just teammates. They're going to, they know they see each other more than I see them. Well, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. Um, not that they didn't want to, they just didn't know how they just were trying to also get things done. That's been the biggest growth that I've seen as an outcome of COVID that really had to shift how I thought as a leader. And it continues today, just in a different level. All right. Tee up what part three, what we're going to talk about in part three. So we've gotten to defining the churn. We talked about the four-legged chair that is involved in churn and assessing those, um, the components. I think now once you have the churn, you've lost somebody, you've now hired somebody to fill that, what next? What do we do with our existing teams? Let's say you're filled up for the moment uh, because the churn is inevitable. It's going to happen again. What do you do with that now that you're here? That's what we focus on next. Thanks for watching and listening to Grow Great, a city government leadership podcast. For Lisa Norris, I'm Randy Cantrell. Be well, do good, grow great. The website is growgreat.com.